Hello, and welcome to the 150th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday, the 19th of February, 2021, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Jan from the Future Histories podcast to talk about cybernetics, socialist planning, and the realm of synthetic catalaxies. Part two of this episode will be released as a patron-only episode in a couple of days. If you'd like to help keep the lights on and the episodes flowing, head over to Patreon, where for $5 a month you get access to a heap of bonus episodes and live streams, and the Emancipation Network Discord, where we have some damn lively discussion on everything from theory to commie gossip. Okay, let's join the interview. Jan, welcome to the show today. You have a podcast called Future Histories. Do you want to tell us a bit about it and yourself? Well, I started it around two years ago, a bit less, and it's actually serving my own curiosity and interests, uh, more or less. Uh, it, it covers a wide range of topics, to be honest. But I do have three like major topics within the first season. And it's uh, in German mostly. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, the topics are Homo economicus. And this works in English as well. Uh, Herrschaft 4.0. This would be translated as, I guess, sovereignty 4.0. And the third topic, uh, it's called in English, it might be called, actually, you could say post humanism or after the human. In German, it's called nach dem Menschen. So these are the main topics that I, cover but to be honest i allow myself uh, to to use these topics very uh, freely so if i'm just simply interested in uh, inviting a guest that i uh, just read something about uh, something like that i just do it and i follow the lead uh, the the paths that i encounter i i've been put onto your work by a german listener who listens to we're a part of a podcast network a kind of a marxist research podcast network called the emancipation network and he put us on to your, he said that in German language, he says that your podcast was actually more similar to the kind of crackpot stuff that we get into over here. So when you say homo economicus, I presume you just mean a kind of a, like just a general look at political economy, is it? And yes. economics or anything more specific? Well, no. It, uh, as I said, I, I allow myself to <laughs> to to be very generous with these topics. So it's um, more or less a, an engagement with political econ- economy, and and if I'm interested in diving a little deeper in into one specific uh, topic, like platform economics or anything as such, I just follow this 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 uh, interest, and um, so this is quite uh, general about political economy. Yeah. So sovereignty 4.0 is not a thing I've actually, I don't think I've ever heard of it. Most of the English language ones, I think I've listened to, I think at this stage, all of the English language ones, most of them are in the kind of planning or... The cybernetic plant economy in the age of its technical feasibility, you could yeah, say. <laughs> absolutely. That's that's the stuff I'm particularly into at the moment. Well, I, I haven't really heard you talking explicitly about this sovereignty 4.0 concept. Hit me with it now. What is it? Well, it's just uh, one more point uh, in how I try to engage with the different interests of mine. And, and it, it tries to, to dive a little deeper into the question where the political actually sits today, you know. So, so the, the question on how to engage with the political as such has different layers, of course. And today, one of these layers has to be an, a really in-depth engagement with questions of technology and how 
socio-technological systems are actually used in order to form political economies, in order to form and uh, discuss as well questions of power and stuff like that. So I think when one engages with questions of political economy today, one actually has to look at this layer as well. And so I just used it as a, as a label to kind of point out that this is of special interest as well, I guess. Why is it four then? Like what's one, two and three in this nomenclature? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I could get this out of my head in a, in a straight way right now. Actually, I just uh, stole it from Industrie 4.0. This is a term that is used in German language quite frequently to to label the way that technology might be used in very futuristic ways, but it's actually for real talking about uh, ways of using technology as it was used in a capitalist sense for like decades. So it's actually more of a, a charade, uh, more of a, a fake futurism, I'd say, because it acts as if it would introduce a new way of handling things, but it's actually still the same old profit-driven capitalist uh, way of looking at technology and the way that technology could be used. And they just slammed the label 4.0 on it. And so I had to kind of mock it a bit by... By, by using this term Herrschaft 4.0 and and Herrschaft it's maybe in German Herrschaft it's it's a bit I'm, I'm not sure sovereignty the term sovereignty is it does not necessarily have this power grab in it in in German Herrschaft it's a it's a bit of a negatively connotated uh, term as well Yeah, like in the West here, see, we're we're much behind Germany. Everything is like 2.0 over here. So you're 4.0. You know, you're a lot, you're, you're, you're many phases ahead of us. As usual, the Germans are ahead of us. A listener, Julian, to the show, he's German. He, he was kind of filling me in on Timmy's opinion on some of the stuff. He was putting me onto your stuff first. He said that, like, it seemed that you were able to find these ob more obscure academia types that are operating in these same fields that, say, for instance, I'm interested in this and that I've been surprised. Where are you finding these? Are you working in that, in, in this, in, in your, as a full-time job, as academia as well? And it's like you're like exposed to these kind of more niche people in the field or, or what? Hmm. I'd say it's a mixture. I do do a, a PhD uh, and, and the topic is on socio-technical imaginaries of algorithmic governance. So yes, there is an overlap for sure. But I'd say that my interest in these topics stems from an earlier time where I was not even in academia because I studied fine arts, actually. I did not study uh, sociology or anything as such. I studied fine arts. So I was... I think it has to do with the way that I function. I'm, I really don't give a fuck about money. <laughs> that's for sure. I just, just, it's a necessity and I had to take a lot of time to understand that I, I cannot escape this. But uh, the, the way that I function is more or less driven by my own kind of intellectual obsessions, so to speak. So I'm just following these more or less. And then I encounter different uh, types of thoughts and different schools of thoughts. And if I, if they trigger anything within me, then I, I, I try to dig in uh, deeper. And I mean, this might sound kind of pathetic, I think, but I do have some drive to to understand kind of basic elements of society because i'm i'm more or less wondering myself 
most of the time, I guess. And so the, throughout, through this wondering about like the most usual, that other people seem to think of as highly usual or normal, I, I'm, I'm, I'm oftentimes finding myself wondering about. And, and so I try to kind of understand better what is the rationale or the logic behind this. And the homo economicus question, uh, homo economicus question would be a good example for this because if you look at the narratives of of economics and then you, you encounter these uh, orthodox narratives and you just think what the fuck are they talking about this nobody within his clear mind could ever believe this kind of stuff so how does it actually happen that that this is the dominant narrative within these highly influential scientific fields and so then and then you try to 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 dig a little deeper and then you encounter people who are engaged with it and and then you dig even deeper and then you come to more and more kind of obscure things seen from the orthodox perspective but it's actually kind of a search for plausibility for me i'd say How did you come into this stuff? Like for me personally, I just, it was essentially 2008 and I somehow managed to buy like a copy of Capital and I'm one of, was one of those poor, unfortunate people that actually sat down and read it. You know, it wasn't one that stood on my shelf. I actually read it and that was like pretty much my entry into all of this area. Did you come up through a political household or political scene or, you know, how did you end up in this general brain space? Hmm. Pooh, that's actually a difficult question for me to answer. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's, as I said, just this, this sense of wondering, but I'm, I mean, I, I do come from a mildly political family background, I'd say. So, so this is a, mildly not normal leftist household but it's not that they that my parents teached us Marx or anything as such so I don't know I I did start studying political science before I studied fine arts and then and then I just felt that this was not in any way satisfying my my curiosity on an on an intellectual level uh, I, I'd say and I didn't feel challenged i think by this and and so I, i dove into a field that i felt that that i could not master and that was art <laughs> so so i i had to i had to do some circles i i think and i'm not i'm not actually able to to have a have a good narrative on how i got into this i just it just happened somehow <laughs> and what was the political science then like like i haven't studied political science but my anytime i've interacted with any kind of text that would be in that sphere they were incredibly i found what would i say a positivist or like bourgeois uh, with very little deep introspection i found it just very concerned with epiphenomena you know a, a thoroughly uninteresting kind of field like what you you obviously delved in a lot deeper what, what was it like Well, I have to say, no, I didn't. I did not delve into a lot deeper because I just studied for like two semesters when I was like, I don't know, 22 or something or 21. 
And then I ditched it because I felt the same as you just described it. So I, I, as I said, I didn't feel challenged in the sense of it was just boring to me. This kind of way, specific way that they engaged with the questions that initially were of interest to me, you know. So, so this was kind of a disappointment <laughs> for me. And uh, but I would I would say that this has a lot to do with age as well. So this was a specific time within my life where I were looking for something else obviously and and something that was as i said i think less within my comfort zone actually i'd say so that's why i chose art because uh, my the, the family household I'm, i'm from is not uh, like an artistic household or anything as such so this was like kind of far away from the from the things that i would actually allow myself to do and so this was some kind of uh, an interesting road to go because of that i think and and at the end i think i i i did some kind of circle maneuver because since i'm now doing a phd in sociology i i'm at least back in some uh, academia uh, kind of setting you know and i do feel comfortable now so <laughs> so that something has changed and i believe it's me you know <laughs> No, my my friend Julian, who listened to who listened to I think all your shows, he said to me that you seem rather non-committal when it comes to talking political tendency. Like, is this a, a job-related academic type thing, or is it you yourself don't feel fully committed to one before you understand it, or you just kind of want to stay away from that whole goddamn kind of sectarian scene, or is it all of the above? Well, I think it's the, at least the last two, I guess. <laughs> so it's uh, it's certainly true that that I do have my problems with being packed into some kind of ism bucket, you know. And and yes, it's also true that that I I do think I I don't even know enough about any kind of school of thought to to actually feel comfortable to be to be labeled uh, this way or label myself this way. And and then also second, I think it's Uh, there are just so many different schools of thought or forms of political orientations that I do value at least some in some part. So I'm I this would be highly difficult for me to say, oh no, it's just this one thing that I am or that I believe in or anything as such, because it's just simply not true, you know. So, for example, and um, I did an episode on anarchism with Daniel Loic, which is a uh, one of my favorite episodes i really really like it and and i do think that anarchism uh, has a good point in in saying that for example ends do not uh, justify means and that you cannot you know postpone the the necessary change in the relations between people until after the revolution somehow because uh, i i do think that uh, things will get corrupted along the way if you approach it uh, in this kind of way but also anarchists or the the anarchist tradition seems to have a huge blind spot when it comes to for example a more contemporary analysis of of power which which i think would a lead them to to question uh, the the implicit power structures within within their own modes of doing things and b i think it would if they took it seriously they it would lead them away from an arguably outdated anarchist diagnosis of uh, who 
who the most important enemy is and subsequently uh, where and whom to fight, you know? So, so, so I like a lot about anarchism, but I do see flaws in it as well. And, and the same goes for socialism or communism, um, who, which, which has, of course, a lot to offer. But again, nobody gets everything right. So I, I feel uh, one has to, to, to take this into, uh, into account. And at the end, I think we, we will just have to take the best of all worlds and then additionally take into account that today the world is very different from back then when the more classical leftist, uh, leftist traditions were actually conceptualized. So this has to be taken into account. You cannot just say, okay, I'm, I don't know, a Marxist and that's it. <laughs> But if you, if you say that, For real, then you would have to think, uh, like, what does this mean today with the modes of production that we have with the political spectrum, with, uh, yeah, just with the different setting that we are in right now. So I'm, I'm not, maybe I have to say this as well, I'm not, because some people, they say, oh, yeah, well, but this left and right thing, this is... Uh, so not contemporary and stuff like that. I'm absolutely not in this field. So I do think there's a difference between left and right. And I do absolutely feel within the left spectrum. I'd say I'm in the radical uh, left spectrum, even though then additionally, I would have to say that to me, this is not radical at all. It's just, I do recognize that within the discourse about the political sphere, this is labeled as radical. But for me, what is now labeled centrist is absolutely radical because I would never, ever, ever, ever be that radical to say, okay, well, we can just leave people die at the borders of the outskirts of the European Union. That's fine because we're, I don't know. White. We need nation borders or anything. This is super radical to me. So I, um, this is the next level you would have to think what is radical. But within the, the usual... Scheme of things, I'm definitely left, and I'd say I'm I'm on the uh, left radical left spectrum. <laughs> It's interesting we talk about you talked about say anarchism and Marxism. Like uh, I probably said this a few times on the podcast, so I'm probably boring people. But like you know, the anarchists always kind of critique the Marxists for their like bad structures, you know, power structures, and yes. and they're correct. And then the uh, the Marxists look at the anarchists and they say, well, the problems with the, you know, uh, dictatorship of the structurelessness and like they're correct. They're both of their critiques are correct. This is what like brings us, I suppose we might as well hop off into maybe some, maybe we'll hop off into some maybe cybernetic stuff. Because it seems to me like that the cybernetics is like a a perfect kind of mode of thought to synthesize the good and the bad here, where it has a concept, uh, a heavy reliance on decentralization, but also a concept of hierarchy that is not a power hierarchy in a sense. You know, it's, if we model it on the human organism, it's not like my brain is in a strict hierarchical relationship with my autonomic system. You know, that they have different functions uh, and are optimized for different types of function. And in a hierarchical way, but not with a kind of a, you know, a central committee pushing down type of command structure or hierarchy. So what are your general thoughts on the, the field of cybernetics? I know you've had a couple of shows on it. 
Yeah, well, it's of high interest to me, of course. <laughs> and I do think that we, uh, as you just said, we can learn a lot from both the positive and the negative elements of it actually because it highly depends on how you as always i think it highly depends on how you use it and how you structure and build these socio-technical systems that you that you bring into the world based on the paradigms that you that you engage with so there are contemporary power structures that are highly problematic, that are of, as well based on cybernetics and cybernetic systems design. And there is a high potentiality within it as well in, in, the, in the question on how we could, for example, model and then hopefully build different types of political economy that do take into account uh, cybernetics, uh, cybernetic uh, systems design, for example. So I'm that's one of the main topics or strands that is being followed within future histories is this question of of uh, cybernetic plant economies in the age of its of their uh, technical feasibility. And I do believe that this is like super relevant to talk about because it does not only leave us with a potent critique of, of contemporary narratives on, uh, for example, how markets are the best ways to organize um, societies. Uh, so it's not only on the level of critique that we can go and say, oh, right, no, uh, this is actually already being done in very different ways. If we look at capitalist plant economies now and it does have the potential to bring into the world as Benjamin Breton in the episode described it it has the potential to to bring into the world synthetic catalysis to come so we can we will be able and we are already actually able to to build different types of political economies that uh, do function in very different ways and the the aspect that you just pointed at the question of decentralization and versus centralization uh, is is one important topic then when it comes to the question of how we should actually design these synthetic catalyses and how we uh, can approach this actually false dichotomy it's i think it's not it's we should go beyond this question of do we have a plant economy or a decentralized decentralized economy because i think we need both you know we need uh, centralized elements and we need decentralized elements yeah so so for me this is this is a super important topic and i i do think that uh, if we ask ourselves uh, where the leverage is the highest in order to to where we should bring our energies to for building different types of futures then this would be definitely one area one field of of engagement that i i recommend uh, that we work towards intensively i'd say so this Two, two things let's break down there that, that are interesting is like one when you say that we see that the cybernetics is in use say today in capitalist economics like we hear a lot about like walmart or amazon and stuff but like do they actually implement cybernetics and are other firms that you know of like to what extent are they are they picking and choosing certain elements Ah, oh, i'd say it's even on a higher level i i'd say um, when we look at what the paradigms are that capitalist companies such as Google structure their operations along, 
then cybernetics would be on the forefront. So um, there's one quote, I forgot the name. Ah, shit, it's, he's the, I think he's some kind of director at the MIT. And he, uh, uh, there's a super nice quote where he says, cybernetics, the term cybernetics has vanished from MIT because it's, I don't know the actual, actual wording. I think it's because it's in the air we breathe or anything as such. It has already become naturalized the way of thinking the um so i think it's uh, i'd have to think about specific examples on uh, how walmart uh, uh, anybody as such implements this but i do absolutely think that they do implement it but they do implement it in a very specific way that at the end has a linking towards hierarchy and so the, this comes into play what you said before on uh, the different ways of usage that cybernetic thinking can be can be applied to so if they structure uh, feedback uh, elements uh, within the operations then at the end there will always be a hierarchy in place either in the form of a central server or a central infrastructure where the information is being bundled or within the fact that there will be a person higher up in the hierarchy that can definitely overrule everybody else in the name of let's say profit you know so so there is a, a different way in place of how they do approach cybernetics than then let's say Stefan Beer would have done it in in Chile if he uh, did have the time Okay, and then secondly, I suppose we're going to get on to what the hell is a synthetic catalaxy? Because <laughs> when I listened to that episode, I was like, what the hell is a synthetic catalaxy? I've never heard of it before. So give us a, a rundown on what that means. Yeah, well, this is a term that Benjamin Breton introduced in his book, The, the Stack. And it actually comes, the, so the term catalaxy comes from Friedrich Hayek, and he's an Austrian economist famously known for the use of knowledge in society, for example. But he's like a very famous Austrian economist. I'm sure you know it and most of the listeners will know him. So catalexy is, is actually the shared values, the, the knowledge, the information and the communication process that is being fed into the uh, market economy by everybody. You know, so so the, this is like one of the basic assumptions uh, that Hayek introduced. He says, "All right, you cannot ever beat the oh, no, no, he did not see it. You cannot ever. You can't. It's really, 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 really complicated to beat the market in terms of efficiency because only the market is super efficient in bundling all this uh, knowledge, this information, this this shared values in in order to bring it into the process of political economy via the market economy and the and this shared knowledge this is the 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 catalaxy and now benjamin Breton says all right but uh, today we are able to to bring this knowledge into a process of political uh, in, into into a political economy that is not relying on classical market structures, but that is synthetic in the way that, that, that it uses multidimensional information layers that might come from very, very different sources than simply a price mechanism. And this opens up a huge potentiality in terms of how political economy could be structure, structured. And this is actually in 
parts based on like market socialist thinking from the 50s, 60s. Oscar Lange famously uh, said that the the market is a um, is a is like an old school computer, and it can be beaten easily if we just do it by real computers, you know. So this is the the general idea, and as I pointed out before, I think it's a super important concept in order to open this this Overton window, you know, in order to point out or write this uh, fake idea of there is no alternative, this can be brought down. And this is super important because I think there are still many, many, many people who are very much dissatisfied with capitalist structures, but they do not see and do not believe that there is a alternative political uh, economy or there could be an alternative political economy that also serves their needs, you know. And so I think it's very important on the layer of this Overton window that, that we do have a discussion about these uh, synthetic catalyses. But then, of course, we will have to uh, take a more detailed look on how they could actually be structured, because I do not agree with, you know, the market socialist type uh, of thinking, because I don't think that it's just a question of brute force, for example. It's not it's not just that. There aren't enough powerful computers or anything as such that are that are not yet able to compute it. I think that the problem lies elsewhere. Yeah, it's a social it's a social problem. It's a political problem and not a computational problem. I listened to that interview. It was very interesting. Sometimes I suppose when we kind of get into trying to talk about some of these things, it feels like to me you really need to have a grasp of Marx's value theory. Is that something that you kind of rely on? Because I know in some of your guests, you've talked also to um, Daniel Saros about his proposal, uh, kind of a, a, planned, a planned economy proposal. But like heavily in there is this distinction between use value, value, money, you know, this. For me, the core insight of Marx's uh, economic theory is understanding the value form. Is that something that is kind of central to your understanding of the operation of, let's just say, catalaxies and... Do you consider yourself like a Marxist value theorist or like, is that, is that your, is that your bag? No, no, it's not. Absolutely not. But not because it might not fit. It's just that this for sure is an, is an area where I, I do not have enough knowledge. I do not feel that I have enough knowledge to, to comfortably talk about in a way that I feel I could afterwards listen to what I said and say, all right, Jan, you did well. So I think it, it's at the core. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. It's at the core of many of the topics that are being discussed within future histories. And I do have a somewhat understanding of the general concept and why it is very much important to to the question of plant economy as well but i think i would have to leave it with saying that i am absolutely convinced that it is super important that future synthetic catalyses or plant economies or uh, political economies for that matter that they do orient themselves towards the question of use value and that the and and this is also a point where I might disagree with some of the things that came up in the Benjamin Bratton interview, because I actually do not think that it's, for example, enough to price the future even better. We come to this in the in the in the Benjamin Bratton interview at some point. I do think it's uh, if we if we leave it with that, then it will 
always come back to us, you know, because I think we need to transcend this idea of uh, exchange value in, and, and that we, and I think we need to come to a political economy that has as it, in, in its, as its center, in its center, the, the question of use value and that this is the main point of orientation and that we build, need to build the structures around, around that. So, so we'll have to kind of, uh, we, we can, I think we will get to the point again when we get to, to the Breton interview, maybe later. But no, I would not see myself as a value theory expert in any way, shape or form. <laughs> No, it's interesting because I, I, you, you went to exactly the thing I was, I was trying to, I was hoping to go to with the Benjamin Bratton interview, where he talked about. It's a two-part show, so people should check it out. It's really, it's very interesting. But sometimes when I was listening to it, I had to listen to it. I had to listen to it a couple of times because some of my kind of Marxist kind of analysis was uh, shouting at the radio, saying, "You're saying price. You're saying value. You mean price." And you're saying price and you mean value. So a couple of times I found myself, not, not you. I mean, Benjamin was saying it like so. And I, then I had to listen to it again. And I don't know. I, I wasn't exactly sure which he was meaning. And what I was trying to get towards was, uh, yeah, like, I think it, for us, it, we need extreme clarity. For example, he talked about information and platforms and he, he said how, the platform was able to denote the value. Uh, it would say this this piece of information is more valuable, as in it has more of a kind of a from a, from when you say value in a Marxist perspective, it, it it means you know the average amount of labor time required to reproduce it. But when you say like value in normal speak, just like you're talking about value in a, just a, a man on the street. It value and price are kind of synonymous. So sometimes you would say the information has more has more value because of the platform, and I would say, well, actually, it's got a higher price because of the platform. But the value underlying has not changed. And this idea of synthetic catalaxies, us being very clear when we discuss like pricing versus value, I feel like that there is definitely something to be teased out there or maybe maybe it was just in in the general talking there was a lack of precision but i i, I don't know if that's something that's hit that's hit you that there was a sometimes slight what's the word i don't know misconception no yeah well well yeah i do i i understand what you mean but i would say that i think from the way that benjamin Breton talks he uh, sometimes is difficult to understand for many But I would argue that he is super clear nearly all of the time. So I'm, I'm really impressed by that, I have to say, because I think that he does not mean price in the specific example that you gave, the, but that he means use value in, in, in this case. So the, the, the information that the people, the users of the platform bring into the platform, it will via the platform have uh, have more use value for the user him or herself so i don't think that he does mean price in this specific case and that's what platforms do they, they that's what they provide they provide provide this this infrastructure that will through the different possibilities of engagement bring us to a point where in this case information that i brought in will have a higher use value for me i see that you want to <laughs> say something yeah 
no, that's good. Yeah, no, because yeah. like in in that he didn't actually say use value. He said value. And yeah, it, I understand. It, and in yeah. the whole discussion, most of the time, price and value were being used. Were kind of in a kind of Marxist kind of a way. I got the impression, but that's that's that that makes a lot of sense. And it might also be because maybe he's just simply not strictly looking at it from a Marxist perspective. It's, I mean, this is obviously it's it it is something that he does take parts from and and uh, uses it in within his uh, theorizing and and to a very fruitful extent i think but it's not the only way that he looks at it so that this might be another thing no very very much so like and he he does talk i think he gets you know you had some discussion in there about about the the structure versus the base and the superstructure and this idea of What was the, there was a, a phrase he used. Let me see if I, I think I've written it down here. Like the accumulation of moral virtuous acts versus changes to the base. So this idea, like if we all just bought our, you know, our bamboo toothbrush, we would get the plastic out of the economy versus like core fundamental changes to the base, which then will change, you know, the superstructure. And I think that, that, you know, listen to Benjamin, he completely falls on the correct side of base being the prim primary driver in these things. But one thing I think that was kind of lacking, and this is just, I'm just chatting because I don't I haven't read his work, so it's not like a critique. We're just ch chatting based on the interview. So in case he ever listens to this, I'd probably want to get him on the show to talk about him. So it's not really a critique at all. It's just kind of questions. But this idea of a synthetic catalaxy, how much, like to change the catalaxy, like, so that's, Like that's communism. You're you're changing the or socialism, whatever you want to say. You're you're changing the catalaxy. You're changing the price computational structure. Say like in you know Marx's critique of the Gotha program, you have he he recommends going towards a, a system based on a labor time calculation. That in a sense was would be like a socialist communist catalaxy. What is interesting about Benjamin, he's coming up with this idea we we need new catalaxies not only we need them everybody can see we need them but we can do them we have i think both the social ideas for social infrastructure and ideas for computational infrastructure to do it but there seems to be a big lacking point is like it seems to me you need a revolution to get the new catalaxy i can't see capital ever coming towards a new catalaxy on their own account well they will they are doing it right now i think But it's still a capitalist one. <laughs> so they are. They, Explain uh, that they... to me. Explain why you think there's a new catalaxy. <laughs> well, because the I, I I think that the that what has been the narrative, the dominant narrative within a capitalist framework, that markets are the sole and most effective producers of truth. That this is coming to an end. So, and and that's where the change of catalaxy happens, actually. So, so, and I'm absolutely aware that this is right now. If you do an empirical questionnaire, like 90% of capitalist folks will still say, well, that's what we believe in, you know? But I'm absolutely positive that this is coming to an end. I don't think it's, it, it will be a fringe position in, let's say, 30, 40 years, you know? That does not mean, this does absolutely not mean that there won't be a different capitalist catalaxy then, yeah? But the, the, there is a transformation 
in place right now. We do have some some form of uh, platform capitalism where the whole sense of do you have a scarce good or is it a, um, how how do you, do you make profit as a capitalist enterprise? All these things are very much in motion, and 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 they are being transformed away from this idea that the market as a producer of both efficiency in the classical uh, neoclassical economist sense and as well as a producer of truth which is might be more in the austrian side of things you know both of this is coming to an end i believe so so there is a transformation but it's not going away from capitalism right now as we you know i i'd be on the other side of that to be honest <laughs> I, i think that If we were to look at 1960s capitalism, I think we would see a much, maybe a smaller role for the market than we see today, where the kind of state was seen as more important. That if anything, over the last 40 years, we've probably seen an increase in the market as a catalepsy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with this. But I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about like the, Right now, <laughs> I absolutely do agree. I mean, that this, this is the hegemony position for the last 30, 40 years has been that the market is the place to go in order to look for truth, in order to look for uh, social organization and stuff like that. Absolutely. I would never, ever disagree with that. That's the, I mean, you have great work by Mirovsky on how this was being brought about. But I do think that we are right now. <laughs> like I, I, I don't, I don't know about which date I would set or which you know. But it's right now we are in the midst of a transformation. I do, I do believe that. I mean, this is of course uh, looking into the crystal balls kind of talk. But uh, I, 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 I do think we are. Uh, yeah, it's just a prognosis. Do you see it like I like so? The internet has managed to allow monopolies not to be just like regional monopolies, but like global monopolies. You know, we've monopoly on search, monopoly on, you know, social interaction, you know, monopoly on buying small items, obscure items, you know, Amazon or whatever. But like within those large now global kind of monopolies, we, we see internally kind of kind of the emergence of different catalaxies. Is this the kind of the root of where you see this coming from? Or is it a more of a gen gen general kind of, you think there's a breakdown in the belief in the market as a proper catalaxy? Oh, I think it's both actually. And uh, I, well, I mean, I don't think that the the breakdown of the belief in the catalogs that's interesting because then again we are at the question of base and superstructure somehow I think um, um because I I I don't think that the breakdown in the belief system is the reason for that so that's uh, that and so so then I would uh, absolutely land on the same page as, as Benjamin in the talk Of course, there has been some kind of break in, in within the belief system after 2008, but this is not the reason for all of this. I think it's the, the reason, the reason for this transformation towards different types of capitalist catalexies is within a, a base structure, technological base structure. And, 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 and this is again as well the place for some kind of potentiality for different forms of synthetic catalexies but this is not on a one to one or i would disagree with the argument that is made 
a lot that you just have to look at Walmart and they do their internal planning um, uh, on the scale of like Switzerland or anything as such. And, and that you should, that we should, and I'm being polemic here, simply like socialize the means of feedback structure, feedback production, sorry. And that's it. But, and that's uh, because I'm quoting Evgeny Morozov. That's not what Morozov says, but it's sometimes repeated in, in the wake of the Boswalski and the, the, the book Walmart. Um, okay, yeah. Phillips, is it Lee Phillips? Ah, Lee Phillips, yeah. yeah. So that's the... That's the argument that is sometimes repeated uh, in the wake of Lee Phillips and Lebrusowski's book. What's the name of, of, of Walmart? Uh, Jesus, is it up there on the shelf? People's Republic of Walmart. Right. There okay, we go. Again. Yeah, so yeah. That's repeated. Uh, that's often repeated within the uh, wake of, of People's Republic of Walmart by Lee Phillips and Michael Roslowski, I guess it's the name, but we can look it up afterwards. And um, but I do not, I do not think that that it's that simple. And uh, Benjamin Breton as well points this out in the in the episode we did on synthetic galaxies. Oftentimes, it's simply not the information we need, you know. So the because these technological infrastructures are being built within a capitalist political economy, they do have these logics ingrained within them and so there would definitely be have to be a form of transformation in order to to make use of similar types of of technologies or actually you would have to build different types of infrastructures on their own that might use some parts of the let's say uh, technological equipment that has been developed within these uh, capitalist firms but others not so there has to be a, a process of aneignung i don't know the english word for that so you to make use of so you, there would have to be a a, a form of um, transforming this these technologies for sure even i'd say you have to go further and one of the projects that we have to do right now is not only coming to a point where we are able to imagine different kind of uh, socio-technical systems or synthetic catalysis, but also start building them. And this is also already happening on a smaller scale, but um, this has to be approached and is being approached by, by some already. So these small scale, these different ones, what, give me an example of what you mean. Uh, I just remember that uh, Francesca Bria and Evgeny Morozov, they had a project in Barcelona, a research project that was heavily engaging in, in building prototypes for different types of infrastructures on a city level. I mean, the city level is pretty interesting because you can actually do a lot on the city level already right now without having this huge kind of power grab that is being imagined in the classical types of revolutions or anything as such. And since, since in Barcelona, they do have a very progressive leadership within the city. And I think Francesca Bria is also has some kind of position within this as a, I don't know, digital supervisor or whatever the actual name is. But so there, there was an interesting like back and forth between uh, people who engage in building these infrastructures on a very experimental level in the first place and people within the administration of the city who are willing to try to check out, okay, how do we get beyond this stupid smart city approach that is being pushed upon us by Silicon Valley elites? But how can we engage with this 
um, with the possibilities that do lie within this uh, engagement with synthetic catalysis or different types of uh, socio-technical systems, how do how do we do it just differently? You know. Yeah. So, I, like, I think one of the reasons why I push back on on the idea that these capitalist ones are like going to come, I think, is that that in itself would be some form of capitalist revolution if you know what i mean it would be like a restructuring at the very root base of capitalist society you know the interactions on how we price every single thing it's like it's like instead of getting having the market do its magic we have a separate synthetic pricing mechanism for capitalism and that to me like one of the kind of strengths of the capitalist system is it's like decentralization you know it's an emergence it's it's it it, it is it's an emergent system you know as opposed from like a, a there are elements of planning in it but you know it has its history is an emergent system there was never a big capitalist plan at the start it it it, it was born out of out of society in an emergent way it's like what is the process by which capitalism reorients everything all of its decentralized nature into a new catalaxy in a in a way like to me that's that's an it's it's an incredibly revolutionary thing for capitalism to have done i would think it would seem to me to would take an incredible change in capitalist relations to try and introduce such a thing so I can, we can see the, like, the need for some of this stuff and we can see its emergence in some areas. But to get from that to reorienting the capitalist pricing system globally seems like a, a phase change, if you know what I mean. Well, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm leaning myself out of the window quite a lot here. So if I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just speculating as well. But yeah. I'd say, uh, first of all, I would say, and no, I don't think that it is, and that's kind of the point as well. It's it's not as revolutionary as you would think because uh, the 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 actual basis is left alone. So so you will still have the the capitalist laws of motion that keep this thing running. You know, so this is being left alone for sure by the capitalists. So in order to to keep doing what they're doing. So even though these are, of course, then huge transformations, uh, there is a, a basis that is not different than afterwards, you know. And then I would say, well, maybe, and this is a bit more like speculating, the, I'd say the, the, the main things that, that come into my mind from the tip of my head is platformization and monopolies, you know. So you do the, the, the way that platforms work is already pretty different you know you have a rentier system there so they are they they are themselves market makers so if apple does have the apple store then they make like 30 percent out of everybody who sells stuff on their market and and they have such a power in doing this that this is a perfect rentier system so so this is already a different uh, kind of logic and that doesn't mean that this has not been there ever before it has but it is now within the digital sphere a dominant kind of logic that has found a different way of engaging with non-scarce products in order to still 
make a huge fucking amount of profit out of it. And they do so by establishing their own markets. And this is already something very different, I think. And, and this is happening in more and more areas of the economy. And I'm not sure, I did episodes on this one as well for, with uh, Philipp Stab for the German listeners on digital capitalism. He has a book on this, which I really enjoyed, I have to say. And, and I'm always asking my guests, okay, how, but how do you like apply this platform logic on goods that are not within the digital realm? And this is still kind of interesting and we will see how this develops. But you can already see that also within these spheres, a platform logic is being applied uh, bit by bit. You know, you have... Uh, What's the name of this huge tractor company, Deer Hunter, anything like that? John Deere. John, John Deere. Deere. You know, yeah. they, 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 they engage in, kind, in, in types of platform e economy as well. And they build fucking tractors. So this is not, not a digital <laughs> good. Yeah. So, so there is a, a change um, within these logics of, of how, how capitalism functions and as well narrates itself because if you look at Peter Thiel as one of the like main proponents of okay markets are for losers then this might be a fringe position right now but for once uh, Peter Thiel is more influential in certain areas that you might think you know so he's he is kind of a thought leader for certain types you know and and uh <laughs> mildly said and yeah. and um and so this might be a fringe position right now but but i i do believe and um i would have to think about what more of uh, more arguments i could bring forward to that but uh, maybe it's also just an intuition you know i i do think that we are in the midst of of a transition when it comes to how capitalism narrates itself and how it legitimizes itself and so so this is I, yeah, I do believe it's happening. On this episode, you heard the team tune, The Order of the Phronic Jesters, The Antique Blacks, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats.